The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. These are the words of Jesus. Now, it may sound like he's talking like a farmer here, but he's actually giving his spiritual assessment of the place and time that he's living in. He was surrounded by people who were interested in learning more about him and what he was doing, what was going on. And some of them were open to receiving the good news and following him. They were ripe for the harvest, but more laborers were needed. 20 centuries later, the number of people open to hearing about Jesus has exponentially increased. And again, the laborers are few. Now, you may remember back in February, I challenged us to be praying a prayer, praying that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into his harvest. I suggested that we pray it every day so that we would become more fully invested in the mission of God. That we too would share our faith with others. Well, this morning we're going to pick up that prayer again and we're going to take a few steps forward following Jesus' lead. Our gospel reading begins in Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 35, but it goes right into chapter 10 where Jesus is giving his disciples instructions after telling them to ask the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest, Matthew writes, then Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and he gave them authority. He then sent them out into the villages to do the work, to be the laborers. See, one potential side effect of asking the Lord of the harvest to send laborers out is you might get recruited to be one of those laborers. I think that's kind of the point. Now, Jesus gives these disciples at this time specific instructions for their mission. Some of them are applicable to us today, and some of them are not. He tells them, for example, to go nowhere near the Gentiles and to enter no town of the Samaritans, but to go to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, we know that these instructions are limited to this particular mission because at other times, Jesus took his disciples into the region of the Gentiles and into the towns of the Samaritans, and he did ministry there. And we also know that after his resurrection, he told his disciples to make disciples of all nations. So clearly, it's okay for us to reach out to Gentiles and even to Samaritans as well as Jews. There are other instructions for this mission which may not be something we can follow to the letter, but they provide us with guiding principles for gospel mission principles that have not changed through the centuries. 
We're going to explore three of these unchanging principles for gospel mission this morning. Now, there's more than that in this passage, but that's all we have time for this morning. So we're going to go back into Matthew chapter 9, and I invite you, if you've got a Bible, if you've got one in front of you, to open it up to Matthew. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. It comes right after the Old Testament, ending in Malachi. It comes right before Mark. And so as we get into Matthew, we turn to chapter 9, and we start reading at verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and curing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now we have to start here because it is so key to Jesus's ministry. When Jesus saw the crowds, he did not fear them. He did not resent them. He did not condemn them. He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Probably more than any skill Jesus could impart to his disciples was his love and compassion. Jesus was not overly concerned with one's appearance or station in life. He didn't care if someone was a blind beggar or a synagogue leader or a tax collector. Instead, he focused on their spiritual needs, the need that they had for God's love and salvation, for the forgiveness of their sins, and to know that they, even they, could become part of God's kingdom. When Jesus healed people, there was a meaning that went beyond the physical healing. These were signs that the Lord loves humanity, that he knows each one of us. He knows our hearts, our minds, our souls, and our bodies. And he comes to bring us complete healing and wholeness and salvation. Lepers not only had their skin cleansed, but they were able to re-enter into community without being shunned. When Jesus healed the paralytic man who had been lowered down on a mat to get into the house where Jesus was, he also forgave that man of his sins. And the woman who had bled for 12 years, she was not only healed of her sickness, but Jesus called her daughter and he removed her shame. So these physical healings pointed to a deeper work of restoration taking place, a restoration that was not only for those being healed in the moment, but for all those who put their faith in him. So Jesus's ministry and the ministry he called his disciples to and he calls his disciples to today requires great love and compassion. And yet, if you remember, Jesus's disciples were sometimes quick to try to prevent people from getting to Jesus, acting more like bodyguards than those on a mission. 
And we too can quickly judge other people and decide they're not appropriate for Jesus and his kingdom based on their appearance or their behavior. We forget about those times that we've acted in ways that might ask other people to question if we could have any kind of relationship with Jesus. But as Jesus has shown us mercy and love and forgiveness, he sends us out to show that same kind of love to others. This isn't a love we can manufacture. It's something that comes to life in us from our own relationship with the Lord. In other words, we are able to love God and others because God first loved us. We are able to show compassion and mercy because we've received compassion and mercy. And so the first unchanging principle of gospel mission is that a desire to share Jesus with others comes from a heart of love and compassion. Only the Lord can develop that kind of heart within us in the context of our ongoing personal relationship with him. And so by choosing to follow Jesus each and every day, we can trust that he will do that work in us and give us hearts to equip us for sharing the gospel with others. Now moving ahead into Matthew chapter 10, we read, Then Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to cure every disease and sickness. Now being summoned by Jesus may be daunting enough for some of us, but then imagine being given the authority to drive out unclean spirits, to cure every disease and sickness. That probably sounds fantastic to some of us. I mean, beyond our comprehension. But even if you don't believe that you've specifically been commissioned to perform exorcisms or to cure people, the, the authority that Jesus gave his disciples isn't really that far beyond our reach. Consider the fact that we perform a kind of exorcism at every baptism. Did you know that? After asking the baptismal candidates or their sponsors if they renounce the devil, the deceits of the world, and the sinful desires of the flesh, the priest prays over those about to be baptized that Almighty God would deliver them from the powers of darkness and evil and lead them into light and obedience of the kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's a prayer of exorcism. It's a prayer of deliverance from unclean spirits, from demons, from evil. So clearly, we believe that Jesus has given his church the authority over unclean spirits. The church is the body of Christ here on earth. So of course we've been given that authority. Likewise, many, if not most of us, pray 
for healing, for ourselves, for our loved ones, for our brothers and sisters in Christ, for those who ask us to pray for them. We may or may not believe we have the authority to cure someone, but if we believe the scriptures, it's hard to deny the clear instruction to pray for the sick. At our healing prayer service for Bishop Charlie Masters a week ago, we had a reading from the fifth chapter of the epistle of James, beginning at verse 14. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise them up and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Praying with faith for the sick is just part of basic Christianity. Perhaps we need to acknowledge the sad legacy that false faith healers have brought upon the church as they have swindled people out of their money and sometimes out of their faith as well. But we cannot allow their false witness to prevent us from living out the scriptural mandate to pray with faith for healing. We can pray with faith for healing without angrily demanding that the Lord give us the results that we want or without blaming people for their sickness saying they don't have enough faith to be well. We can and we should be praying for healing with hearts full of love for the Lord and his people with humility and patience and ultimately leaving the results up to the Lord. So we may not be ready to march into every city and town and cure every disease, but two millennia and the advent of modern medicine has not changed the fact that praying for healing and praying against demonic forces are basic tools we have been given for gospel ministry. Finally, let's look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 7. As you go, proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, the kingdom of heaven is just another way of saying the kingdom of God. Part of Jewish piety can include avoiding any mention of God. Some of you may have come across people writing the word God as G hyphen D instead of G-O-D. This can be a way for some people to try to protect the holiness of God and his name. In the same way, Matthew uses the phrase the kingdom of heaven in place of the kingdom of God. And so what is the kingdom of God? And what does it mean that it has come near? Well, think about the Lord's Prayer. We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. So the kingdom of God is the realm of God. It's where God is present, where he reigns, where his will is accomplished, sometimes through supernatural means. So throughout salvation history, we see God's kingdom intersecting with human history. We see it when he delivers his people out of slavery in Egypt, when he delivers a remnant of his people out of Babylon, back to the promised land. But then in the fullness of time, we see him enter human history in a profoundly new way. He enters into our world as a baby, a human being. And this man, Jesus, ushers in God's kingdom in a way that no one had ever witnessed before. Jesus has the authority, the understanding, the righteousness and power that exceeds Abraham, Moses, King David, and Elijah all put together. He is not anointed by oil. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit. God the Father says over him, this is my son, the beloved one. With him I am well pleased. And one by one by one, the scriptures are fulfilled in him. And so when John the Baptist's disciples ask Jesus on behalf of John if he is the one to come or if they should wait for another, Jesus says, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. In other words, the words of the prophets are being fulfilled right here, right now, in me. You draw your conclusion. This is what the inbreaking of the kingdom of God on earth looks like. The poor, the sick, the broken, the dead receive the riches of the kingdom, healing, wholeness, and life. Those who were once counted as nobodies are now somebodies, beloved by God. Both Jews and Gentiles find their hope in Jesus Christ. The kingdoms of this world that once seemed so powerful, we know human history, they inevitably pass away. But God's kingdom will last for eternity. And we, as followers of Jesus, we are agents of his kingdom today. So when Jesus tells his disciples to proclaim the kingdom of heaven has come near, this is a message we can take into our world. As people grow disappointed and disaffected with the kingdoms and the philosophies of this world, be it governments, businesses, institutions, social movements, anything that promises them hope and change. Well, we proclaim an eternal kingdom, 
with a king who is perfectly righteous, just, and has demonstrated his self-sacrificial nature when he gave himself for the citizens of his kingdom. And so even in the 21st century, the kingdom of God remains a central part of our gospel proclamation. And so with hearts submitted to the Lord, asking that he will fill us with his love and compassion, and with the authority of Jesus to pray with faith for the sick and against the powers of evil and darkness, and with confidence in the hope we find in the kingdom of God with Jesus as our king, we set forth into the world as ambassadors for Christ. Yes, the mission field looks different now than it did for those 12 disciples. They lived in the first century, and with the particular mission we we're reading about today, it was only for the Jews. We live in the 21st century, and our net is much, much wider. But certain things have not changed, and they will not change. As followers of Jesus, we continue to depend on him for him to grant us the love and compassion for others that he revealed most clearly to us when he died for the sins of the whole world on the cross. With the leading of the Holy Spirit, we ask him to give us the eyes to see others the way he sees them and hearts to love as he loves. When we encounter those who struggle due to disease, oppression by evil spirits, or other difficulties, we not only seek to get them physical help, get them the care that they need, like the Good Samaritan did, but also through spiritual means, praying with them for their healing and their deliverance. And when we meet those who are down and discouraged and hopeless, by all the bad news that this world brings, tragedies, scandals, injustice, strife, wars, oppression, we are able to proclaim that there is another kingdom at work in this world that is bringing about healing, wholeness, life, truth, justice, and reconciliation. And that kingdom is an everlasting kingdom with a righteous king on the throne, Jesus Christ, who comes to free us and save us from sin and evil and death. Friends, this is an amazing gospel that we have been invited into and to share with others. Years ago, there was a Christian band, I think they're still around today, called the Newsboys. And they released a song called God is not a secret to be hid. Indeed, he is not. The kingdom of God is not an exclusive club for the cool kids, or for the self-righteous, or for those who have their lives put together. No, the doors are open wide to all who would respond to Jesus's invitation 
to come and follow me, and I will make you fishers of men and women. So today, I again encourage you, challenge you to pray that prayer. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. But this time, I'm going to expand it a bit. So if you would please pray with me. Oh Lord, send laborers into your harvest and allow us to be among them. Show us today, Lord, the person or people you are calling us to pray for, to develop love and compassion for, to pray for their healing, their deliverance, the forgiveness of their sins, and their openness to you. And grant us opportunities, we pray, to share the good news of Jesus Christ and his eternal kingdom with them. We pray all this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.